Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And we're reading the whole chapter. Paul writes, And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do so as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. I thank God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carried the offering, which we administer in order to honour the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift, for we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. In addition, we're sending with them a brother who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous, and now even more so because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brothers, they are representatives of the churches and an honour to Christ. Therefore show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you so that the churches can see it. 
Good evening. Uh, because it's still um, January, I should also say a very happy new year to you as well. Um, so it's great to have you with us tonight. Do keep your Bibles open. Uh, if you close them at uh, our reading, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And as Paul said, we'll only focus really tonight on the first 15 verses of that reading. And as we turn to God's word, let's pray for his help. We've just sung, Lord, you were rich beyond all splendor, yet for love's sake became so poor. Father, we pray at the start of this new year that the remarkable love that you have shown us in sending your son into the world to become poor for us, to make us rich, we ask that that grace would shape our hearts and be what causes us to live for you in this coming year, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, because it is the start of a new year, it's that time when I guess uh, we are often particularly full of all kinds of good intentions, all kinds of plans that we hope to achieve in the coming year, uh, plans to do good things. And yet, uh, so often our good intentions aren't matched by good actions. Uh, Every year I intend to write thank you letters for all my lovely Christmas gifts. And yet um, every year somehow I seem to struggle to move from that good intention to acting out that intention by actually writing uh, those thank you notes. Uh, It seems that somehow there's all kinds of barriers between the thought of writing the notes and actually posting it. You have to remember uh, who gave you the gift in the first place, and then you have to find a suitable note to write on, and then you have to actually write the note, and then you have to find a stamp, and then you've got to find the address to go with the, the letter, and then you actually have to post the whole thing. And so there are many barriers for me, anyway, between the good intention and the action. And it's not uncommon for me, um, come mid-June, to be rummaging through the cupboards and come across a, a half-written thank you note with a partial address and a stamp and an unclosed envelope uh, lying around the house somewhere. I guess I am not the only one who struggles to move from the land of good intentions to the land of action. In fact, I know I'm not the only one because... Uh, tonight and over the next two weeks, as we look at uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, we discover that the, the Corinthians are people who struggle to move from good intentions to action. It seems that uh, Paul is trying to get together a gift of money. Uh, he's trying to collect this gift from churches in and around modern-day Greece and, and Turkey, And he's trying to then go back to Jerusalem with this gift of money to bless the poverty-stricken church in Jerusalem. But look at what's happened with the Corinthians. Pick up the story at verse 10. And Paul writes to them, Here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. Paul is talking about this gift that he wants to send to Jerusalem. And it seems, verse 10, that the Corinthians have been eager to play their part in the gift. In fact, they had already given some money towards it, but they had planned to give far more. Except, verse 11, they haven't actually given yet. And so Paul says, finish the work. 
Let your eagerness be matched by your completion of this giving of money to the Christians in Jerusalem. And so to that end, Paul is sending his friend Titus to the Corinthians with this letter of 2 Corinthians in order, uh, verse 6, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. That is, the Corinthians giving uh, money to this collection for the Christians in Jerusalem. And so Paul wants to move the Corinthians from the land of good intentions to the land of concrete action on this particular issue of giving money. And not just giving money in general to any and every cause. Of course, there are lots of things we could give our money to, lots of good things to give our money to. Now, the particular cause here is for the relief of other Christians. As Paul puts it in verse 4, as a service to the saints back in Jerusalem. Paul's particular burden is that Christians would give money to help and support other Christians. That is the particular kind of giving and focus in these chapters. And I guess after all, if Christians won't give this way, who will? And so at the start of this new year, we have a chance as we watch Paul pastor the Corinthians, we have a chance to look also at our own hearts in this area of money, to think through what is motivating us. Are we giving? And if we are, why? Are we living in the land of good intentions but with no action? It's a great opportunity to see why we should actually give money this way. And what is so striking about our reading tonight is the motivation that Paul gives to Christians for this kind of giving. So often when people ask us for money, we are left with a, with a sense of guilt uh, or a sense of fear or legalism or obligation, pressure. But none of these ideas are on Paul's mind. In fact, verse 8, he says he is not giving a command. He doesn't use guilt. He doesn't use emotional manipulation. He doesn't use condemnation. He doesn't make giving a work by which we somehow win brownie points before God. No, Paul simply uses grace. Uh, The word grace appears uh, five times in the first nine verses. And Paul's basic point is this. When God's people grasp God's grace given to them, then there is within the hearts of God's people a tremendous desire to give generously to other Christians. That is his basic point tonight. And in our reading, Paul gives us two uh, worked examples of grace to show us how God's grace given to God's people should well up in this extraordinary outpouring of generosity to to others. And and these two examples are our two points tonight. Our first example is the example of the Macedonians, looking at the first seven verses. Verse one, uh, Paul writes, and now brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. 
It's that time of year when our TV screens are filled with the uh, latest dieting plans and supplements. And often we're told, aren't we, that if we just follow these three simple steps or take this one simple um, procedure, then in a few weeks' time we'll lose uh, lots of weight. And one of the ways in which we are persuaded that this new plan will work is we are presented with a real-life human being who has tried the dieting plan, and we're showing the, the before and after picture. Look at how it's affected them. They've lost so much weight. Wouldn't you like to be like them? And of course, that is a powerful way to demonstrate the effectiveness of a particular treatment by looking at a particular human life and to see how their lives have been transformed. Well, Paul says, let me show you the power of God's grace by showing you a real-life example of how it's changed some people. But of course, what Paul is trying to show us here is not some gimmick or trick, like a dieting plan. No, he's showing us something that God has done for us. We don't have to do this. This is God's action on our behalf. And he wants us to look at the Macedonian example. Let me tell you about the Macedonians says Paul, let me show you how grace has come to them. Verse two. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. (laughs) What an extraordinary verse. This week I've had a little bit of a cold. And being a man, I'm not very good at dealing with colds and I've been sort of moping around the house Um, at times feeling sorry for myself and Lorna knows very much about how difficult my cold has been this week as I've explained it to her. Uh, I'm not good at suffering, even in a small way with a tiny cold. It brings out uh, the mopiness in me. But what about the Macedonians? They have experienced something far, far worse than a cold. I think Paul's referring to their being persecuted for being Christians. So a severe trial, he calls it. And yet, did you see verse two? They are overflowing with joy. What an extraordinary combination. Severe trials and overflowing joy. Or what about their extreme poverty? It's very possible that because they were Christians, they were being denied jobs. Because they are Christians, people would trade with them or barter with them. Because they are Christians, there is no prospect of them ever becoming rich in the future because they are Christians. I guess they had families to care for and bills to pay, concerns of life to worry about. You can imagine in the face of this kind of poverty, they would want to to hoard what little they had to kind of save it up and to make it go as far as they could make it go. But no, verse 3, Paul says, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. (laughs) I don't think I've ever spoken to a church treasurer who has had the problem of people coming to him or her pleading to give more money. And yet that's the picture Paul paints of his experience of the Macedonian church coming to him, urgently pleading for the privilege of giving more money to support the Jerusalem church. We aren't told about uh, the size of the gift that the Macedonians gave. It may well have been small given their circumstances. 
But Paul is very clear about their attitudes. Overflowing joy, rich generosity, urgently pleading. And it is a remarkable worked example. What has caused this outrageous behavior? Well, it might be that their own poverty has made them able to identify with others who are in poverty and perhaps their, their hearts have been softened because of their own experiences that they give. Uh, certainly all of the surveys and stats show that poor Christians give more than rich Christians, proportionally speaking. But that's not what Paul says here. No, uh, the reason that he gives... It's not because there's a command, not because there's compulsion or guilt or condemnation. No, he's very clear, verse one. It is because of God's grace given to them. And like a a kind of giant V8 engine rumbling away under the bonnets of the Macedonian's heart, God's grace is powerfully propelling this poor church forward to eagerly, extravagantly give. And we are seeing here that that grace begets grace, God's grace coming to his people, the Macedonian church. It has arrived, they've got it, They've, they've embraced it, and it's at work in them now to beget more grace to other people. And so Paul wants to tell the Corinthian Christians about these Macedonians, not to condemn the Corinthians, but rather, I think, to help them see what kind of impact God's grace should be having on their hearts. And after all, we we know that these Corinthians, well, they, they thought of themselves as being pretty spiritually mature. We know that from Paul's first letter. There's a hint of that, isn't there, in 2 Corinthians 8, when Paul talks about how they excel in everything. Verse seven, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us. Signs of Christian maturity, of course, yes. But verse seven, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Because Paul knows that when Christians get God's grace, then grace begets grace. It's a timely reminder for us at the start of a new year. We might think of ourselves perhaps as a mature church. I don't know what you think of us here as a church family. Perhaps we think we have a strong faith or perhaps we have a a good grasp of Bible knowledge. We have a clarity about our use of scripture. Uh, Perhaps we think our speech is full of biblical truth, that we speak well. Perhaps we are a church that's full of earnestness, giving ourselves in service. But is there also within our church family and within our hearts individually a tremendous desire to joyfully and freely give for the sake of others? Imagine if you would, um, in the future, you have to move cities. Perhaps you finish your degree or you go to study somewhere or your job takes you somewhere else and you're trying to find a new church. I wonder what you look for in a new church. What are the kind of some of the priorities you focus on as you search around? Well, I hope you look for, for clear, faithful, biblical teaching that would build your faith, that would help your knowledge to grow rightly about God's word and about God himself. I hope you look for a, a loving church family that cares for each other practically. 
I hope you look for earnestness in the church family. Perhaps as we sing, believing the words that we sing, all good things. But I wonder how many of us would also look for a church that is marked visibly by extreme generosity. It seems Paul does. You see, Paul is saying here that we know God's grace has really started to get to work in people's hearts and minds in a church when we see its people giving like the Macedonians. But this is where I've got stuck this week, if I'm honest, because when you read these kind of passages, you have to look at your own heart. And if I'm honest, I've looked at my heart this week, and my heart is not like the Macedonians. In my best days, I'm, I'm like the Corinthians. I, I, I kind of want to give, but I'm not always very good at it. But I'm not like the Macedonians. I can't describe myself as someone who gives joyfully, urgently, pleading. And so what do I do? My guess is I'm not alone in a room this size. I love what Paul says next in chapter 8. He doesn't say, oh, you don't want to give. You don't feel very generous. You haven't acted on your intentions. Oh, dear. You're not a very good Christian, are you? He doesn't say that. With the skill of a pastor and the skill of a, of a heart surgeon, he simply takes us back to God's grace. And that's our second point. Paul has shown us the example of the Macedonians and God's grace at work in them. Now, secondly, he takes us to the ultimate example of grace, Jesus himself. Look at verse nine. Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Here is that V8 engine rumbling away under the bonnets of the Macedonian heart, propelling them forward towards amazing generosity. This is what they've come to receive and understand. Here is God's grace. Paul is not talking about cash. He's talking about something far greater. The one who was truly, eternally, perfectly rich. The one who had it all. All glory, all honor, all splendor, all wisdom. The one who had the perfect relationship with his father from eternity in the past. The one who could not be richer. That one gave up everything, becoming a man, in order that he might die the death of shame and condemnation on the cross. Becoming poor, that we might become rich with his riches with those eternal riches that never perish, spoil, or fade. We have been made rich. We are rich with all the riches of the Son from eternity past. We have direct access now to the Father through the Son. We are rich spiritually with every spiritual blessing in Christ, the blessings of forgiveness and adoption, we have the blessings of a, of a wonderful inheritance that is being kept for us in heaven that will be revealed to us when Christ returns, that will not perish, spoil, or fade. 
That is what God's grace means for us. He has made us rich, unbelievably, undeservedly, unthinkably rich. Which means that uh, the students among us at school, at, at university, with no income, perhaps with large debts to our name, we are rich. It means the one amongst us who cannot work, who is unemployed for whatever reason, who has no job, who struggles to make ends meet. Or the Christians around the world facing persecution and poverty in all kinds of ways, including the Macedonians. We are rich. And I think we get ourselves in a real muddle about what it means to be rich. I remember growing up, I used to love playing Monopoly. I think partly because I was very competitive and I just um, loved sort of battling to the very end of the game. But also I had this sort of strange fascination with the money. You know what, you get this kind of stack of money and you kind of thumb through the, the 20s and the 50s and the 100s and, and even the 500 notes. And you thought, oh, look how much money I've got. And of course, you know, sort of being 10, you think, you know, I wish this was real money. Just imagine how rich I would be if this is actually real money. You know, 500 pounds. And that's how we think, isn't it? We think, you know, I've got a 20-pound note. We think, we think that's real money. That's real wealth. And so we give ourselves to studying that we might get good results and good degrees, that we might get a good job so that we might get a good income, that we might get more of the real stuff, real money. That's how we think. That's how the world thinks, that real wealth is found in this stuff. But did you know, this stuff here is as real in the light of eternity as monopoly money. In the light of eternity, this stuff doesn't last, it doesn't work, it doesn't keep, it makes no difference eternally. And yet so much of how we think is all geared up to becoming rich this way, but it's just monopoly money compared to the riches found in Christ. Don't get me wrong, money matters. We need it to get through life. Paul writes, because money matters, this collection matters. But money doesn't make us rich. Only Christ can. And I think the the, the poor, suffering Macedonians, even in their severe trial, they knew that they were rich beyond their wildest dreams. They have it all in Christ. Christ. And so they gave the pounds away. I don't know if you heard the story of um, David and Edwina Nylon. Uh, last week they bought a lottery ticket. And on Saturday they, they played their numbers. The same numbers I think every week they've played for years. And on Saturday night with a jackpot of 35 million pounds. This was last week. Their numbers came up. That they'd won. And they went to bed that night, Saturday night, unbelievably wealthy, 35 million pounds. Their lives changed completely forever. Uh, the next morning they woke up and they, they rang into Camelot to claim their prize. I guess, I'm not sure how it works, but that, I think they, they rang up. And they were told that their payment hadn't worked for some reason. There hadn't been enough credit in their account, that they'd sent their numbers in, but it hadn't been received they didn't actually have a valid lottery ticket. The right numbers, but, but just the payment hadn't worked. They had nothing. And for 12 hours, they thought they had 35 million pounds. 
and then the crushing realization that they didn't actually have any money at all. And they were interviewed, maybe you saw it on the BBC website, they were being interviewed afterwards about you know, the whole experience, and they were absolutely gutted. You know, they could hardly speak, they were so upset at the loss. And we get that, don't we? We understand how crushing it would be to lose that much money. And yet the thing is, no matter how much money we have now, how many pounds we have, it all has to go. At some point, we will lose everything in our bank accounts. All the stuff that we build up, all the possessions, the physical stuff, it all goes. It doesn't last. It may be that that the Nylans lost their money just a few years earlier than they would have done otherwise, but they're going to lose it at some point. And so we look at them with pity, but actually the same will happen to everyone. If we make this the barometer of our wealth and our riches, it all goes. We lose everything. True riches is found in the grace of Christ. There is only one kind of wealth that lasts beyond death and for eternity. It comes to us through the grace of Christ. And so Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, you, you know this, Corinthians. You know how much he's done for you. You know how wealthy you've been made in Christ. You know it. Now, now keep on knowing it. Keep on believing it. Let it filter down through every layer of your heart and your thinking. Let it fill you with unshakable joy and eagerness because you have it all in Christ. You know of the grace. You are rich And so like the Macedonians, who were willingly eager, let the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ affect us that way as well. Well, as we move to a close, there is, I think, one obvious question that comes to mind. It's a question I've been grappling with as well this week. How much should we give? If we're being called to this kind of gracious generosity, how much What does it look like in practice? In the Old Testament, we kind of knew, we were told that there was a clear command, give 10% as a tithe. But in the New Testament, there is no such command. Paul says clearly in verse 8, I don't command you. There's nothing in the New Testament about how much. There's no number. I'm not going to give you a number tonight. That's not what Paul says. But he does give us, I think, some guidelines that are incredibly helpful. And with these guidelines, we finish. So just in the next few verses, verse 12, Paul says that our, our attitude matters. He says, be willing when you come to bring your gift. In other words, whatever amount of money we decide to give to other Christians and for the sake of other Christians, whatever amount it is, do it willingly. Don't pick an amount that's so high that it makes you bitter or, or sorry or angry or, or full of guilt. Choose an amount that you, can do, that you can give willingly. The attitude matters. Now Paul continues, verse 12. Uh, someone should give not according to what he doesn't have, but according, verse 12, to what he, what he has. Give according to what he has. And that, again, is very helpful. Um, a student um, at school, at, at uni, with, with no fixed income, perhaps, again, with a large debt, well, that student doesn't have a lot of cash, 
And so they may not be able to give very much. That's okay. For them to give 10 pounds would be a costly thing because of of what they have. But someone else here tonight who is in a well-paid job and who has been for many years, well, you have more. And so give according to what you have. That's the principle here, isn't it? Um, I heard an interview with a a well-known Christian preacher and author a few years ago. I heard it live. Um, uh, Many of you will know this person's name. I I won't mention it. It doesn't really matter who it is. But um, he was asked how much he decides to give. And he said, and it was very humble. It was was quite open and honest, but it was said humbly. He said that um, 30 years ago when he first became a, a pastor of a church, his income was quite small. Um, they managed to scrape together enough money to, to buy a three-bedroom house. It wasn't very big. And um, you know, he, he bought simple clothes. He wore a cheap watch, drove a cheap car. And they managed to scrape together 10% of his income to give back to the church. That was the amount they could afford at that time. Well, 30 years on, uh, this person has written a number of books that have sold kind of in the millions. A lot of money has come in. And he now gives... of his income to the church. He still lives in the same three-bed house as he did 30 years ago. He still wears the same cheap watch he did 30 years ago. He still wears the same cheap clothes, and I believe him when he said it, um, that he did 30 years ago. So he hasn't changed the way he lives, but what he has has changed, and he can give more now. He gives 90%. What a great application, I think, of... 2 Corinthians 8, giving according to what one has. Uh, Then verse 13, Paul's goal is not to make the Corinthians hard-pressed. I think he recognizes that in life we have bills to pay, we have family to care for, we have responsibilities to to look out for, we shouldn't be reckless in our um, giving. Uh, So don't be hard-pressed in how you choose to give. Um. But once we've covered the the basic living costs and expenses and responsibilities, I think Paul would say, then be generous. And then verse 14, Paul's goal is equality. And verse 14, then there will be equality. Paul isn't saying that um, across a particular church family that um, everyone must have the same bank account number you know, pounds in the bank account, or everyone must live in the same size of house or drive exactly the same kind of car. I don't think that's the kind of equality Paul means. In fact, in the New Testament, it's clear that some Christians had more possessions and physical wealth than others. So Paul isn't saying we must kind of even out that way. But I think Paul is saying that the way that Christians should do family life is that if there is a need amongst the family, then the one who has more should be quick to give to the one who has less, that that need may not last. And in that sense, there's an equality of giving and receiving and sharing that the family functions like a family, that no one is left kind of unsupported and uncared for. Well, as we finish tonight, however much we do decide this coming year, however much we decide to move from intention to action, let us remember the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, 
might become rich. Oh, that we would be a church that knows how rich we are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the way in which the Apostle Paul has, has brought the gospel of grace to bear to the hearts of the Corinthians and also to us here many, many years later. We thank you that we aren't called to give out of guilt or condemnation or compulsion or command, but we thank you that the Lord Jesus gave himself first for us, that we might be rich. And Father, please, would you be so at work amongst us by your grace that we would be a church marked by grace to others, that people would, would hear about us, not that we'd be glorified, but that people would go, wow, isn't God's grace amazing? Look at how it's transformed Christchurch forward. We pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.